With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by Pablo Maurer, who covers DC United for The Athletic, Pablo is one of the most interesting people I've ever met in the American soccer community, and I think you'll understand why after listening to our interview. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Our guest today is one of the great renaissance men of American soccer media. You may know Pablo Maurer from his D.C.-based soccer coverage, formerly in D.C.ist and now in The Athletic. You may know him from his remarkable photography, especially the Abandoned State series that ended up in National Geographic. You may know him from his podcast, Open Wide for Some Soccer, or from his work as a mechanic, which most recently included work on what appeared to be multiple Lamborghinis. You can find Pablo on Twitter at MLSist. Pablo, thanks for joining me. Thank you. I really, really knew the ego boost you just gave me. <laughs> I've never, I've never been introduced like that. I really appreciate it. I should just hire myself out for this stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a lot to talk about here, as you can tell from that introduction. And uh, first off, congrats on joining the Athletic in DC. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to, to getting back to covering soccer more regularly. I sort of, uh, you know, was doing it more sporadically for the past year. So uh, it's obviously a good time to, to. Uh, you know, fire up uh, DC United coverage again. A lot of stuff going around, around uh, going on around the club. Yeah, you know, so no, definitely. I, you're now working under a legend at the Athletic uh, DC in David Aldridge. Um, how come I never saw something from you called "Why I Joined the Athletic"? <laughs> uh, you know, like ten people tweeted that at me, and I, <laughs> you know, or or just jokingly just tweeted "Why I jo- Joined the Athletic" by Pablo Mauer. <laughs> So I, I wrote a very short essay. It's like a sentence long, and it's basically that, um, you know, they, they pay well and they respect, uh, you know, my creative vision. It doesn't take a lot for me to to uh, hop on board. You know what I mean? <laughs> the, these days there are a lot of outlets that don't do either of those things, so uh, so I'm definitely excited. Well, fill me in. What are you going to be doing for The Athletic? Uh, just D.C. soccer coverage. I mean, primarily D.C. United. Um, maybe some longer stuff I've I've always liked writing long i mean most recently for them i I sort of tagged along with uh espanol the la liga side they had sort of a a uh, really interesting visit to richmond virginia which is just a totally random place for a um a la liga side to spend a week you know so they they sent me down there and i kind of uh uh tailed tailed after them and and wrote about the experience um have a couple of other longer things coming out so a little bit of everything a lot of dc united coverage Let's talk about DC United. I also want to talk about the Espanol story, which I really enjoyed a bit later on here. Um, there's a lot of excitement around DC United, which is a sentence I didn't think I would be saying in the year 2018 uh, or any year after 2004. Um, stadium, Wayne Rooney, 
give me a sense of what the vibe is like around DC United right now. Yeah, you know, it's a little surreal, man. I mean, I it, it, uh, I started covering the team in 2011. Um, you know, they've had a couple of decent years since then, but, uh, you know, even their decent years were years where they sort of ground results out, played pretty unattractive soccer, um, you know, drew really poorly at, at a stadium, which was obviously dear to my heart, but is, was just a total dump. Um, you know, nowadays, I mean, it is, it's like, uh, it's a lot to, to handle all at once, you know, between the, the new stadium, which I think is something a lot of us who've lived in DC, like I've been here for 13 years and I don't think I thought it would ever happen. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously, uh, been a lot to take in. And the Rooney thing is, is, uh, truly surreal, honestly. I mean, I think fans of the club here in DC and people who cover the club like myself have just gotten used to, um, you know, more budget minded approach. And it's, you know, sitting next to Seth Bertelny, a good friend of mine and, um, you know, writes for goal.com was sitting next to him on Sunday and just turned to him. And I said, it's, it's still really strange to look out there and see Wayne Rooney roaming around, you know? Um, and what you said is sort of spot on because, you know, there's a lot of people, asking me about the club both on the internet and just in person that i never even thought would you know would never even have have even thought to go to a dc united game or even pay attention to them so definitely the the club is getting some traction uh here in the city that they haven't had and i mean over a decade honestly do you like the new stadium i assume uh i'm getting used to it um i'm a little underwhelmed generally given the price tag they're putting on it, which, you know, the building and all the land, uh, you know, the cost to prepare the land, they're saying it's a half a billion dollars, which is, you know, a crazy amount of money. And you sort of look around the league. I, I always, uh, you know, look at Bank of California Stadium and sort of salivate and think of what could have been. Um, you know, I, I will say there are a ton of positives. You know, I mean, every, every seat in the place is a good seat when they get fans in there and and uh you know they make noise the noise stays in there it's it's a real loud place to play i mean definitely has a a lot of potential you know but i guess i'm a little underwhelmed you know just because the bar has been raised over the years um you know and i i don't know that that audi field really meets that but you know your friend brian strauss he's fond of saying just the fact that the stadium exists (laughs) is so crazy that you know i think a lot of people um, you know, don't don't exactly care about about how the stadium is or you know the amenities or whatever you want to say. So, when they say half a billion dollars, I always sort of took it that they included this new training ground plan as part of that. Are they actually saying that the half a billion dollars is just the stadium and stadium alone on its property? Yeah, the stadium and the land that it sits on. Now, I know um, there's sort of been rumblings here in DC that. Uh, the the cost to you know for environmental remediation that sort of stuff because the the stadium was built on what used to be a scrapyard mm. um, and, and I think the soil is pretty contaminated I think the you know that those expenses uh, there were overruns there that weren't anticipated and mm. so there were there were then things in the stadium that were you know uh, people in the business are fond of calling it value engineered you know out um, <laughs> you know I think. And, and I also, and I don't know that it's been reported, but the, you know, the, the roof, for example, if you, have you been to the stadium or, or I have you not still yet. haven't been? 
Yeah. So I mean, there's there's open patches in the roof, right? There's like there there uh, you know there's the roof is sort of looks half done, and hmm. uh, I had a conversation with a team official a couple of weeks ago who told me that yeah, indeed, in the off season they're planning on sort of filling in those open areas. Um, there are season ticket holders who've told me that they get renewal calls where the salesperson is like, yeah, the stadium is unfinished, you know. So <laughs> I think. I, th- <laughs> I think they were on a pretty tight schedule, Grant, to get it done. I mean, uh, uh, I-, I went about, I don't know, a week before the stadium opened, and they had permits posted uh, in the stadium offices, and they had been working, you know, they, they had been working overtime, I think, for-, for months at that point, you know, to get it done. So, um, again, just minor miracle that it even exists, I think. So Yeah, I in terms of Wayne Rooney, one of the big stars of world soccer over the last... 20 years uh i love the idea that uh acosta calls him senor wayne i hope everyone calls him senor wayne at this point um what's it like covering him and has he been good to work with in any sense i know it's a huge adjustment for him to come to a place where he has to talk so often to the media well so there's two sides to that i mean uh i you know i interact with him on a weekly basis and uh, he's been nothing but a pleasure to deal with. Honestly, I think you're totally right. And that it's, it has taken some getting used to uh, for him to just have, you know, random dudes like me walk up to him in a locker room. On the other hand, you know, I think he sort of embraces it because the random dudes like me that are walking up to him in a locker room aren't asking him about his wife and kids and, uh, you know, his personal life, any troubles he may have had. I think most of us are concerned about the soccer, you know. Um, so in a way, I think, you know, they're, they're, you know, the maybe the format of the attention is all different. But, you know, as far as the, the scrutiny that he's under, it's, you know, undoubtedly less um, in the United States than it is in, in Britain. I mean, I will say there, there have been games where, you know, for example, uh the, the coach's press conferences run long and, you know, half the players are gone by the time you get to the locker room and Rooney has waited around the new media. Um, mm-hmm. So I think he's, um, he's embraced it, you know, um, the hype, you know, the, the hype about him sort of being incredibly hardworking and leading by example. Um, it took just a couple of weeks to realize that that was, you know, pretty much a hundred percent true. I mean, the guy um, works probably harder than anybody else in training uh, it's very obvious he's not above um, doing anything. You know, I think the team when he first joined offered him, you know, to offer to fly him privately and to, uh, you know, house him in a, his own hotel room, etc. He declined all that stuff. He, um, you talked about Lucho. You know, they offered him Lucho's number, uh, which was his obviously traditional number. He declined. Hmm. Um, you know, so I think he's fit in really well. And yeah, I have I have zero complaints about any interactions with him. I. I I actually feel pretty comfortable speaking for for most of the guys in the beat when I say that too. Does he go out in DC at all? That's I, I mean I, I I think so. I ironically, man, I mostly read about that in the British press because they <laughs> uh, it's crazy. They like Daily Mail, all those places. They have people over here like taking photos of him and his kids. Um, oh, I saw a photo of him. I think I just out for a walk in Georgetown, and. Um, you know his uh, his uh, his wife was uh, with him. She like popped into a psychic there. Um, you know, so I think I think he is. 
he is going out, but you know, I, I certainly I haven't seen him around. I don't think he goes to the kind of bars that I do, Brad. I'm not positive. You know. <laughs> Yeah. So I want to know about you a little bit here. How did you get into soccer writing in the first place anyway? Uh, boy, I, don't, I barely even remember. I mean, I, I grew up, uh, my parents are Spanish, right? So mm-hmm. I've, I've always been um, a huge soccer fan. It just sort of runs in the family. I've uh, My parents are also both writers. Um, and... You know, I've always ridden, and I think just probably in 2010 or 2011, I got hooked up with uh, with an editor at DCS who um, asked me if I wanted to do some DC United coverage for them, and, you know, I, I kind of jumped at the opportunity. I mean, I've always observed MLS. I guess I've never really supported a team. You know, when I moved to DC, I didn't really, um, you know, I went to a couple United games, but I... I didn't really uh, support the club, I guess, you know, so I just viewed it as a, an opportunity to get paid to watch soccer. I think that's the way most people view uh, view soccer writing. So. so what's your sense of soccer's place in Washington, D.C., both in history and kind of how that history we might see some of it in present day? Um, yeah, D.C. is... Uh, DC is steeped in soccer history, right? I think uh, so much of that has been forgotten. I, mean, I was working for a long time on an oral history of the Washington Diplomats, and I talked to like 35 or so players, and um, you know, collected a lot of old photographs of the team. Tony Quinn, who's like a, a legend uh, in these parts, he's a uh, you know one of the great American soccer photographers. He um, he he basically just handed me. Uh, you know, two Rubbermaid containers full of negatives from the 70s and said, here, these are yours. You can have them. Um, yeah, you know, I think um, DC United, obviously, I mean, uh, you know, they they lost so much of their luster in the, you know, I guess late, you know, in the, uh, we'll just say in the past decade. But, um, you know, they were, they were giants in MLS, obviously. And you could make an argument that their fans sort of pioneered a lot of the fan culture that you see and, um, uh, and MLS nowadays, you know, so, I mean, there's a lot here. That's not to even go into, you know, there are other teams, the darts, the whips, the, you know, the second incarnation, incarnation of the, uh, diplomats, the Washington stars, the warthogs, I don't know, the Baltimore blast. If you want to broaden it out a little bit, you know, um, it is, it's, uh, it's definitely an underrated, uh, soccer town, I think, you know, now did the NASL team America play in DC as well? They did. I'm surprised. I forgot. Uh, about them i did like a, a a real real deep dive into them um for mls a few years ago they played for a year at rfk what a weird idea um <laughs> that was you know. which was to have guys from the u.s national team play together for a club team as a club in the nasl yeah i always it cracks me up because they had at the time they had the largest sponsorship deal in the history of american soccer and it was uh, winston cigarettes i mean like <laughs> not something you'd uh, you'd see much of these days anymore I don't think you know although you still get you know there's still uh, other malign influences I guess now it's like pyramid schemes that sponsor uh, teams in MLS so <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean speaking of cy- cigarettes and DC soccer I think of Johan Cruyff now yeah. you've done stories on all of this stuff which I would suggest that people go and read um, whether it's Team America whether it's the dips which included 
Johan Cruyff. What did you learn about Cruyff and his DC experience doing that story, the reporting for it? Yeah, um, you know, it's funny. He came here. The the reasons why, why, for example, the reason, one of the reasons Rooney cites for coming to DC, you know, you always hear every player like a Rooney or Thierry Henry, whoever, say that they can sort of walk the streets undisturbed. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, uh, Cruyff arrived in D.C. from Barcelona, and I mean, his family were like getting death threats. You know, he was in a very bad place, and very quickly he he settled in a life here. And uh, you know, Thomas Rongen, um, it's a guy who needs no introduction in, in these soccer circles, I guess. But he he lived with Johan Cruyff. He was mm-hmm. just like young Dutch kid. He lived in the basement of Cruyff's house in Georgetown. Um, you know the Cruyffs, they lived next to um, the Kennedys. You know, I mean, get this. Johan Cruyff used to ride his bicycle from Georgetown to, to RFK Stadium to train every day. Yeah, that's just completely insane, right? I mean... Dutch! Um, yeah, but he was like... He was uh, everything you always hear about Cruyff, just sort of ha- his domineering personality and him being difficult to... You know, a difficult teammate. 100% true when it comes to diplomats. I mean, you talk to guys who played with them and they, they all say the same things. And the first one is he's the greatest player I've ever seen in my life. And you know, this, that, and the other thing, uh, the second one is he never stopped smoking. He would smoke like half a pack of cigarettes at halftime. Right. And, and the third one is that he was just like, you know, all of them said the same thing. He would stop in the middle of a game, raise his arms to this guy and just start screaming. I can't do this. I can't do this right now with you people. You know, he called them, uh, a beer league team, I think, once in a locker room. There are players who describe him like uh, clearing the coach's instructions off the blackboard and, and say, no, this is how we're going to do it. You know, um, Don Drogi, who's a defender on the Diplomats, he actually told me that uh, Gordon Bradley, at the time the coach of the Dips, wanted to give uh, Drogi like some, you know, a pregame sort of tactical instruction. And he did it in a bathroom stall. And before he even did it, he looked under all the other bathroom stalls to see if Cruyff was anywhere near him. <laughs> So like the the head coach was terrified, right? Of Johan Cruyff. I mean, like, um, so yeah, that it's totally fascinating to to talk to. One of my biggest regrets is I didn't get to to um, to talk to him before he passed away. I was in touch with his people, and he seemed very interesting and talk, interested in talking. But I I like so many other people, I had no idea um, how you know how how much his illness had progressed, and the fact that he was you know and and risk of dying so it's it's unfortunate yeah i mean i i remember covering the 2000 mls cup final in dc between chicago and kansas city and cruyff came because stoichkov his former player at barcelona was playing in that final for chicago and we all went and interviewed cruyff at halftime and it's pretty rare that you get that close to a living legend you know um he is. I have a. I, I managed to um, to track down and acquire a game worn Cruyff Dips jersey. And as much as it paid me to do it, about two months ago, I stuck it in a mailer and sent it to the uh, National Soccer Hall of Fame. Oh wow! So yeah, I, I you know like I take so much pleasure in sort of like be you know writing at my desk and glance over my closet and see it hanging there, right? But, I mean, at the same time, it's, like, something that other people should put eyes on, you know. So I look forward to seeing it there. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I want to ask you about your Abandoned States series of photographs because 
if listeners haven't seen this series of photographs that you did, it got they're incredible and they got an amazing amount of attention as they deserve globally. Could you tell the story of what Abandoned States is was? Yeah, um I've been doing a series for maybe six, seven years of uh, photographs of uh, now quote unquote abandoned places. So I'll do typically a, um, a longer essay about the history of the place. I'll track down some, some people who are still alive, who remember how it was. And then, then usually I'll just go and break into the place now and take photos of it. Um, the piece you're referring to, I did some before and after imagery, um, Basically, I was in an abandoned resort in the Poconos, and I found this matchbook on a desk in uh, in one of the offices, and I realized that the photo on the matchbook was of the pool, which was, like, right underneath me. It was on the bottom floor. So I went down there and um, kind of tried to recreate the image on the matchbook, and from there I started going to antique stores in the Poconos and Catskills, eBay, wherever, find old you know postcards um, of resorts and did six and se- six or seven other places sort of overlaid the images and, and animated them. So it kind of looks like you can sort of see the decades of decay in a matter of seconds. And, um, then I wrote a short essay about it. Yeah. I mean, it really definitely really resonated with a lot of people and, you know, I hate saying this, but I knew it would. Um, mm. it's like, uh, it is a, you know, it's just sort of a, the images are, are powerful. I mean, it's something we can all relate to kind of like loss and, the passage of time for me, you know, it, it was great. It, the, the piece blew up and it was in all kinds, you know, got picked up by all kinds of other outlets. The, m- the most important thing to me was that Pee Wee Herman retweeted it. No way. But you know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was like that. It was, you know, several of my, like Pee Wee Herman, uh, Nico case, one of the myth busters, it was a really random <laughs> collection of people, all of who I adore. Right. So <laughs> to me, the, uh, the, uh, just the, like the, geek cred that that got me was was uh, was worth it you know i mean yeah i it really really is cool i remember the first time because you posted some of these over time before i did yeah i mean I, I, it took me three or four years to do the entire the pokedos and catskills thing i mean it was like probably 10 different weekends over a three four year period so yeah i, I would occasionally sort of like let some trickle out you know but well it was just uh, it was really cool to see it go viral the way it did uh I guess one question I would have is where did that side of you come from? The photographer side. Uh, that's like just growing up as a weird, um, kind of, uh, dorky overweight kid, not having a lot of friends, um, which leads you to do things like just get on your bicycle and ride to the other side of the city and, you know, explore weird places. I, I mean, a lot of credit has to go to my dad who like, um, he's definitely the kind of guy who like, if you're, if you're riding along with him and, and you know, just off the side of the road, he sees like an old set of railroad tracks or something like that. He will pull the car over. Right. And like, you will start walking down them. Um, definitely like, uh, I definitely remember having long, like long, long days with my dad just, doing things like walking down railroad tracks or exploring old buildings like that. I mean, nowadays I'd probably call child protective services or something <laughs> like that. But, but back, you know, back in the eighties, you could just go with your dad and walk down some railroad tracks and nobody was like, call the cops, you know? Um, so eventually, uh, you know, I, I've always been exploring the places and it, it got to the point where like, 
people are always like, oh, what's it like there? But then nobody actually wants to go, right? Because it's it's creepy as shit, and you could get arrested and whatever, you know. Um, so I started taking photos of them, and then I, um, I'd been writing on you know DC United for a while, and I thought, well, you know, I bet I bet some people would like to see these photos, so I, you know maybe I could take a swing at publishing them. So wow. the rest, I guess, is history. You know. Did you ever have any trouble with cops on some of these shoots? Oh yeah, man. I <laughs> I got in one of the Poconos resorts. I very memorably, and I wrote about this. Um, you know, <laughs> I'll tell the whole story. It's about so I could do it in like three minutes. Okay. I think I've told it a, a lot of times. I was at this resort with a friend, and we were in the top floor of this this like seventies lounge area. There's this like vinyl clad heart shaped bar. Wow. And this sort of like Knights of Arabia style lounge. And, you know, it, it was uh, very few people knew about the place. So it was like untouched. It had been sort of closed for 15 years. So I was doing a long exposure, um, right? So I just sort of open the shutter and you wait like 30 seconds, a minute or whatever. And it's completely quiet, right? And all of a sudden I hear this car door shut. You know, you hear the sound of a car door outside. Mm-hmm. And I just immediately I was like, this is not good, right? So I turned to my buddy and I was like, "All right, so we'll just we're just gonna walk out the front door and like make our presence known." I just thought it was probably like the person who owned the place, right? Mm-hmm. So we start walking towards the front door, and um, outside I see like a police dog and a SWAT team, right? It's like the Pennsylvania <laughs> State Police, and I'm like, "This is not ideal." Um, I came around the corner, sort of like with my hands up and my camera in one hand just like a baby going like i'm a photographer i'm a photographer you know like i've never felt dumber about myself than i did in that moment um but it was crazy they we got on the ground the police dog was like barking at us i didn't realize this but i guess they train police dogs in german because like i think it's probably yeah yeah it's probably to keep because i I assume they don't want the person they're arresting to be like don't bite me and the dog like (laughs) bites them so I was like terrifying Pennsylvania state police officer yelling in German while this dog is like staring at me. These guys have like AR 15s. Um, so eventually they get us up and he's like, <laughs> the one cop goes, um, I mean, I don't understand why y'all are in this building. I mean, don't y'all have girlfriends? <laughs> what he said to me, I don't know what he was insinuating any number of things. Right. But like, um, but yeah, eventually they, um, they wrote us citations and they let us go, you know, but it, I mean, it was interesting. Anytime you end up like looking at, like staring at an AR 15, yeah. um, just, just for like taking a photograph, you know, it's a little ridiculous. Um, but yeah, that, that stuff happens. I mean, it, to be totally honest with you, Grant, most of the time cops are just like, just get out of here. Right. You know, like they don't want the paperwork. I don't think, you know, but right. Right. Wow. Well, um, it's very cool. Um, will you shoot, like, do you still shoot photography at DC United Games, or are you mostly writing these days? Yeah, I did. Um, I haven't done it a lot this year. Last year, I sort of like as um, uh, you know, I had I'd mentioned to you that I got all those negatives from Tony Quinn. It sort of inspired me to try and shoot film a lot, um, mm-hmm. which is um, sort of a nightmare when it comes to sports. Obviously, um, modern sports photographers you're just used to like spraying exposures and you know you could you could shoot 1500 images in one game easily Mm -hmm. um you have to be a lot more conservative when film is involved so i did all last year i shot film and it was uh incredibly humbling right Mm -hmm. it made me a much better photographer and it made me uh like deeply 
appreciative of every sports photograph I see, you know, from the mid nineties back. Right. Because, um, those dudes were, were really doing it, you know, like it's just so much easier nowadays on digital, you know, um, I haven't done a lot this year. I think I'll probably start doing it when it cools down a little bit. I, I'm a person who sweats a lot, Grant. So, (laughs) you know, I, the last thing I want to do is not too much. Here's my other gripe about Addy field. There's, there's zero parking, right? So like the team graciously will give you a parking pass, um, which I'm appreciative of, but the parking lot for a lot of these games is, and I'm not making this up. It's 1.2 miles away from the stadium. Oh, wow. So, so like, I'm not trying to walk back to my car with a thousand pounds of gear or whatever at, you know, midnight, um, over, you know, to, to go over a mile or whatever. So I don't know. I'll, I'll probably shoot a couple games before the year ends, but but so far I haven't really done it. Well, I remember one time, and I've worked on a bunch of stories over the years with Simon Broody, who's an exceptional uh, photographer for Sports Illustrated. And, uh, yeah, we should get him on the podcast at some point as well. But um, we were doing a story of Diego Maradona's testimonial in, in Buenos Aires back in 2001, and that stadium is in sort of a rough part of town, but they literally took all the photographers and all of their expensive gear in a van, like the organizers, <laughs> like a mile away after the game in the van so that they wouldn't have to take their, their gear through an area where they might get robbed. Um, well, sounds sounds like RFK. It's crazy. <laughs> I always said I always said RFK was the closest stadium we had to a Latin American soccer stadium. I think it still is. Uh, that's that's a hundred percent accurate. I mean, first of all, it's concrete, right? Which you never see anymore, and right. it's like a that's like a hallmark of those like huge South American stadiums. And it, you know, it's crumbling. It's a little unsafe. Yeah, smells bad. There's all <laughs> kinds of animals in there. You know, do you know uh, people talking about the the raccoon a lot? Did you know that? There was a whole family of feral cats really? underneath the um, far the, the quote unquote bouncy stands where the supporters were, and one of these cats one day got out um, and got tangled up in the netting of a practice school. Oh wow! And they had to amputate the the cat's leg no way. afterwards. But one of the stadium staff adopted it and named it RFK. That's kind of a, a, a weird RFK tidbit, but um, the weirdest animal I ever saw in there. By the way, there was like a fish. There were. You see dead fish everywhere, huh. and like you could never figure out what the deal was, and then you realize that like migratory birds were like, they'd pluck these fish out of the Anacostia and then drop them in the stadium accidentally. Wow! <laughs> but occasionally fans would show up and just be like a dead fish on their seat, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just like the place could get any worse, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask you about your mechanic work because I, as someone who does not know a thing about auto mechanic work. Uh, I actually really enjoy seeing the stuff you post on your Instagram and elsewhere um, about what you do. What, what, where did this come from? What is this side of your your work life? Uh, I mean, I was also uh, always the kid who was like taking apart the microwave yeah. and stuff like that. I mean, it definitely frustrated my parents, like just sort of disassembling everything in the car. So I mean, I went to you know I went to high school and I went to college, and eventually at some point in college, I realized that. I'd rather work on cars, so I quit and got an associate's in um, auto stuff. And over the years, worked my way up. Just from a first job I ever had was at a um, it was like a mom and pop garage in Glen Ridge, Illinois, outside of Chicago, working on. Um, it, it was like a retirement community, so all I worked on were like Cadillacs and stuff like that. 
Um, and then over the years, I I worked at a Land Rover dealer. I became a Land Rover Master Tech. Um, from there, I worked for Ferrari for a few years. And now the past, like, probably six, seven years, I've just worked at a couple of um, independent repair shops here in the D.C. area that service uh, Highline cars, exotics, that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it was, uh, I don't know, it's something I've been doing as long as I can remember, um, you know, and uh, I think that the first car I ever owned, I, I took apart and put that, put back together like 10 times, you know, just to figure out how everything worked. So, so when you post photographs of like a Lamborghini a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. what are you doing with it? That was, uh, I should mention, by the way, I needed a quiet place to, to have this conversation, so I'm actually sitting in a... And a customer's, uh, it's a 2016 Bentley Con now. <laughs> so, yeah, I hope he nice. doesn't mind, you know, but it's like it has a double pane glass and all that stuff. So, you know, it's like a recording studio. Uh, that Lambo I was doing, uh, and it was out of time. Like it had an issue with the timing chains, right? So mm-hmm. um, the degree of difficulty on a car like that is just higher because you typically have like no reference information. There's special tools required that you're obviously not going to own. Um, when you do find, you know, reference information, it's in Italian half the time. Um, so you sort of have to like figure it out. Um, modern mechanics, I always sort of like say, you know, I'm 38 and like, I feel like I was part of the last group of guys and girls to like actually learn how to work on cars and figure stuff out, figure out how to fix things instead of just like, you know, I have apprentices these days who are just like glued to their computer. I mean, they just Mm. Google shit, you know, like they're like, a car will come in and you know will will be displaying you know x y and z symptoms and they'll just walk over to the keyboard and just type that into google and i'm like are you kidding me like you're you're the customer at this point now you know what i mean (laughs) can you figure out how to fix this thing on your own you know like so i i love it man i mean i i would be bored if i worked on something um a little bit more straightforward you know um my mind might be warped from working for land rover for so long because british cars are just total piles of crap and you know they're just like weird electrical problems and weird this that and the other thing so so yeah i um plus it's like the only way i'd ever get to to drive any of these cars i mean i worked on a lamborghini Countach today that's like a car that was on my wall when i was eight years old <laughs> and, mine, and, and mine and mine yeah very quickly uh within like 30 seconds was like this car's a piece of shit and i don't even fit in it right so like i wish i could have told my eight-year-old self that like pick something more sensible you know like put a ford taurus on your wall or something (laughs) what is what's one of your favorite stories that you tell about uh, any any of your mechanic work over the years uh oh it's a tough one um you know, I the guy who taught me how to work on cars uh, when I was an apprentice, it was a, he was like crusty old guy named Russ, and he had lost all the feeling in his right hand. He had like been working on like a, a super duty pickup truck, and he had uh, he was taking a brake rotor off of it, and it fell, and he tried to catch it, and it like severed all the tendons in his hand. Right. Oh my so, god. Yeah, he had no feeling in his hand, and he. Um, I remember one day. Oh god. <laughs> So I was uh, I was working on a car and he was working on a car in the bay next to me and I smelled something like terrible and I look over and Russ has his hand on an exhaust manifold, right? He didn't even realize that he's like leaning his hand up against this, you know, thousand degree exhaust manifold and his hand was just, his skin was like burning, you know? 
so I, I turned to him and I like I couldn't get his name out of my mouth because I was so just shocked. I was like, and finally I scream, Russ, and he pulls his hand up and he looks at it. It's like bubbling, and he just looks at me and he just laughs maniacally. Oh my god! And I was like, this is a <laughs> so like several days later, he was showing me how to uh, do something pretty basic like test a relay or something, and he was like, um, you know, I was like, I had to put a jumper wire from one terminal to another on this thing and he was like no just use a paper clip or something and he instructed me to like take this paper clip and put one end of it and this one terminal and one on the other and unbeknownst to me he was like just mechanics just have like demented senses of humor he had basically had me holding a paper clip and instructed me to like short it out intentionally uh, just like he was just pulling a prank on me but yeah. but you know it the paper clip i'm looking at my thumb right now and I still have this giant U-shaped scar in my oh. thumb from where the paper clip just cooked into my thumb. So yeah, I don't know <laughs> any stories about you about working on cars, but but definitely the uh, the terror that was Russ, my first uh, you know who I apprenticed with, is it stuck with me. I I try and like treat my apprentices these days with more kindness and respect. I don't like electrocute them intentionally or cook my hand and then show it to them and laugh you know <laughs> i can't believe i'm laughing at this um yeah uh, yeah yikes um so do you if you had your preference i mean do you like mixing it up as professionally and in and doing the mechanic work and then the sports writing or or would you prefer to be full-time writing or or what i mean i've had opportunities to write full-time um it, it would be a pay cut you know i like i um I've climbed the food chain um, working on cars, you know, so it's it's a good living for me. And these days, obviously, um, it's tough to make uh, decent money writing about soccer. There's like 10 dudes I feel like who do it, and then there's probably 50 to 100 who, who scrape by, and then there's like a legion of dudes who, are, who could be homeless at any moment, you know, but for whatever, totally worth it to write about the San Jose earthquakes or something. <laughs> I don't know. So like... Um, you know, I, uh, do I prefer this way? I mean, it definitely keeps things interesting. On the other hand, there are days when like, I literally will break away from working on a car to like write, um, a piece. And it's like, it is a difficult reset for my brain. You know, it's just like mm -hmm. the two things are so different, man, that like, you know, it can be, um, it can be tough. And, and then also, I mean, like I work like 11, 12 hours a day on cars, so there are definitely days when I get home and I'm just like, no, I, I do not feel like writing about soccer right now, you yeah. know, but you know, at the end of the day, it's like, I'm super appreciative of the fact that people read my stuff and I'm like always eager to write and, and, um, you know, feel, feel obligated to do so. I think. Well, just to wrap up here, cause I've kept you longer than I promised. Um, like there was, I think a reference to this on your Twitter last week, and maybe this is mixing up your car interest and your soccer interest about something, some story involving donuts in the RFK parking lot. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, after the last game, I thought it was a 2013 season, but it turns out it was a 2014 season. Um, yeah, it's been long enough to where I can tell this one. I think I, <laughs> okay. I left the game and, uh, I was with, uh, the aforementioned Seth Bertelny we were you know in uh, lot 8A which is this like the media parking lot at RFK which is just like something out of Mad Max you know <laughs> like there's just uh, you know massive potholes and I don't know people you know selling people converting their urine to drinking water I don't, you know whatever kind of stuff goes on there like 
you know, it's it's a it's a scary place. So we got there. I got in my car, which is just it was an old uh, you know '80s Corvette, and you know it was like the last game of the year. We had, you know, I I just it, it had been it been a grind that year. I, I was doing a, a beak egg for MLS soccer, and it was like three four pieces a week, and um, you know, sort of like. I didn't have complete control over the content I was producing and much other stuff. So I just felt like blue nuts. So I just did a bunch of donuts and Seth filmed them. Um, and I put it in my Instagram and, and <laughs> so later that night, so like, you know, in retrospect, I guess it's totally unprofessional. Right. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I'm not, listen, I never, this was all thrust upon me, this whole soccer writing thing. So I don't know how to behave. So anyways, like, probably midnight one in the morning i get a text from one of my editors at mlssoccer.com says it's a screenshot of an email and the email is like one of the funniest things i've ever seen it's it's from a dc united front office employee and it says uh, the first paragraph is them trying to make small talk it's like tough loss tonight i don't think it'll dampen you know anything that happened this year though really proud of the guys (laughs) second paragraph just goes um I'm not sure if you've seen, but Pablo posted a video of himself doing donuts in the RFK parking lot. We're going to have to get together and figure out how to move forward from this. <laughs> it's like, so I get this screenshot of his email, and my editor is just like groggily, is like, dude, what what the hell is this even? You know, like what? And I was like, all right, well, first of all, it's true. You know, <laughs> and, and uh, second of all, you know, it was like, I think. Uh, the editor was of the same opinion I was, which is who the hell cares? It's like a, the RFK parking lots are like a third world country, and you know who doesn't like doing donuts? And then to be to be extra offensive, the person who who sent that email misspelled donuts. They spelled donuts like D O U G H, and that's not how you spell donuts in an automotive sense, at least, you know. So that's how square that person was. You know? <laughs> So yeah, but I survived. Uh, you know, it was like one of several things I did that angered the team that year. Uh, but you know, like uh, I emerged stronger on the other side, and now I'm doing a, an interview with Grant Wall and a customer's Bentley. So I don't know, everything's fine, I guess. Well, well, this is the first time we've ever had someone from a Bentley come on the show. So uh, <laughs> I, I will consider that. Almost as much a victory as getting you on the show. Uh, oh, you know what's you know what else is funny? Sorry, I'll just interject this yeah. quickly. Um, I have been working on a lot of MLS players as cars, right? I mean, like when they figure out that I work on cars, I mean, <laughs> dozens of these guys have like brought me their cars to work on, and I always joke. Um, I just I worked on Patrick Nyarko's car the other day, mm-hmm. you know, ex MLS guy, and I was joking with him. I said like that I have a sliding scale. Um, for what I charge, and I base it on the union, on the public salary figures that are released by the players union every year. <laughs> so, like, what do you say? These guys in the league minimum, you know, probably $110 an hour. Designated players, it's like $300 an hour and up, you know? <laughs> so, could you yeah. tell me real quick what, what have you learned about MLS players' cars from having worked on them? Any lessons to take out of that? Uh, no, it's like, you know what? It's a lot like, if you if you if if you could say that MLS as a league is like a middle like a mid tier kind of league, um, the cars that these guys drives are they're, they're also it'd be like a BMW 3 Series or something like that, right. you know, and not never like a never like a, a Bentley or something like that. I mean, I feel like a BMW 3 Series is like the MLS player of cars, you know. It's like the 5 Series would be like a 
you know, maybe like Bundesliga and the seven series would be EPL. Um, you know, so no, they all, they're, they all seem to drive kind of like mid-level, barely luxury type of cars, you know, so. That makes sense. I mean, like the only time I've ever heard the the term Bentley be used with an MLS player was Abel Xavier uh, when I was doing my book research on the Galaxy and he was with the Galaxy back in like 07, 08, had like a white Bentley that he would wear all white and, you know, he had the crazy dyed hair and beard. Oh, my and, God. And, this, this is, like, one of the greatest visuals I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and like, drive around town. Abel Xavier, like, getting out of a white Bentley with that shock of blonde hair and an all-white suit. I mean, it's only, the only thing that's missing is, like, a parrot. Like, he would have a parrot <laughs> on his shoulder for no reason. You know, like, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. that's actually my, one of my favorite RFK Stadium experiences of my career was when Abel Xavier didn't like that I was doing a book on his team uh, <laughs> and takes me into the John of the visiting locker room after, um, or actually, you know, post-game in, at RFK and keeps saying over and over, this is not correct. This is not correct. <laughs> over and over and over again. And, and finally, I talked to Pete Vinus, who came in, because he was friends with Abel, and I was like, I, he, I think he's unhappy about the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah this, is, this is not correct. I should not be in a bathroom stall with you right now. <laughs> like, but I would say this, that Abel is one of my favorite MLS players of all time. I could devote an entire podcast to him. He... <laughs> When he got released by Rude Hullet as, quote, a bad apple from the galaxy, and he <laughs> he hated Abel so much that even though they had to eat his contract and it was still against the cap, it was like several hundred thousand dollars, they couldn't replace him, he still cut him. And then Abel, after he was no longer part of the team, contacts the team PR guy and wants to hold a press conference at the stadium <laughs> ripping Rude Hullet the coach. And the PR guy had to explain to Abel that they didn't do that for players who were no longer with the team. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Uh, this is before the days when you could just, like, you know, uh, fire up a periscope or something like that. Exactly. And they're like, pull a Jermaine Jones and, like, put MLS on blast from your living room. Yes. And they're like, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, I had no idea we were going to go down the road of Abel Xavier, but thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed that conversation. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Pablo Maurer, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on SI.TV. Amazon channels, and Fubo TV. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. 
Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.